The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. My name is Paul Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We're really glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. We are in and have been for a while the book of Daniel. So if you brought your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to open up to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be this morning in verses 20 through 27. We've had a very uh, eventful weekend here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We had our second annual Tools for Reading Your Bible Basic Principles Workshop on Friday and Saturday. It was an amazing time of the people of God gathering, studying the book of 1 Peter. We brought in my friend again, Dave Cartwright, and he led us through two days of, of just working in the Word together, worshiping God together. It was amazing. Who was there? Was anyone here? Clap if you were at the, if you were at the workshop. Yeah, it was an incredible time, incredible time. Last year when Dave came out, we, we were in Hebrews and we had a really difficult text that week to preach. It was uh, Hebrews 6, this text about apostasy that no one agrees on. It was a hard passage and it just so happened it fell on the weekend that, Dan, that Dave was here and I'm like, hey, you want to preach it? And he's like, sure. And I got to avoid a really tough text. It was great and he slayed it. He did a good job. Well, this year as I was looking at the preaching calendar, we just scheduled a time for the workshop that worked for both of us and then I looked at what text lined up on the week Dave was here and it happened to be Daniel 9 verses 20 through 27, which is probably the hardest text in Daniel. It is the hardest text in Daniel, potentially the hardest text in the Old Testament, arguably one of the hardest texts in the whole Bible to interpret. And I was like, hey, Dave, you want to do it twice? You want to preach? And he's like, no, you can preach. That's fine. I I know there's many of you who are uh, eschatology, into eschatology. This is something that is is an area of interest for you where you have probably circled this day on your calendar knowing that we were getting to this particular text which uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled, writing, thinking, theorizing, uh, considering the content of the verses we're going to study today. And so I'm excited to share what God has put on my heart. But one other thing, before I do that, I, uh, I wanted to know that, that here at 1130 today, on our social media account, there's going to be a video that's going to be uploaded. Maybe, many, many of you maybe have seen this leaked a little bit, but it's been on our YouTube page for a day or two. It's called Eschat- or Discussing Eschatology. So what we did on Thursday when Dave was in town, Dave Cartwright uh, and uh, Mike Robinson, our elder, who's a theology professor and the president of Pacific Bible College, and then Pastor Stan Peck from Philippi and I, we kind of gathered and uh, in front of cameras for about an hour and 20 minutes, we talked about eschatology biblically, talked about why, you know, what it is, what, how, how do we think about it, what are some of the camps. And for some of you, you're like, I would rather eat glass than watch that. But there's some of you who think, you know what, this is an area of great interest for me. And that video is going to be uploaded, it's going to be made available on our, on our social media sites, or you can go right now to our YouTube channel and you can watch it. I think it's a worthy investment of your time as, as you hear different men on different sides of the aisle, eschatologically, talking about keeping the main things the main things uh, in, in mutual respect and uh, ultimately with an eye towards exalting Christ. So it's a resource that I'm excited about. I think it's beneficial and I think it'd be worthy of your time if that's something you're into. Amen. All right, Daniel 9, let's read it. Verses 20 through 27. This is a challenging text. FYI. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer... The man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, 
I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then 62 weeks it shall be built up again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. In the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. Now, I I recognize that that is a really complex bit of text. We're going to try to work through it as best as we can today. We're going to try to unpack it as well as we can with humility and with discernment. But before I ask God to bless our time together and to give us ears to hear and and hearts to understand what it is he's revealing to us, let me just share with you like what I believe at the end of the day this text is revealing to us. Something very simple. And if you're someone who writes something down, I would encourage you to write this down. Here's what the text is calling you and me to do. Anchor your hope to the God of history. Anchor your hope to the God of history for his promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. As I gathered with my men's group on Thursday, Matt Turpin, who's in my small group, he, he shared a version of this. And when we, One of the questions we ask each week is what is ultimately being said here? And, and the second part of this phrase, I think, is directly from Matt's mouth. And I thought, what a, good, what a good word. Anchor your hope to the God of history. God is sovereign over the events of history. And his promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. He is God. I'm mindful of the, the psalmist, one, Psalm 121, that talks about how God's foot will, will he'll, how God will not let your foot be moved. He, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I know you've heard me say it a thousand times. It is a great encouragement to know that no matter what's transpiring here on earth, I can know that God is never asleep at the wheel. And I can anchor my hope to the God of history. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask that as we gather here this morning with a desire to encounter you, that we would do just that. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. Lord, we recognize this is a complex text. It's difficult to understand. Their interpretations are varied within the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask as we kind of journey through this that you would give us the ability to understand the things you want us to understand and to hear the things you want us to hear, that ultimately, God, that you would be worshipped and there would be a sense of awe for you and that we would understand what it means in our lives to anchor our hope to you, the God of history. We trust you and we invite you to meet us in this place this morning. All God's people said, amen. So, you know, you probably know for any of you who know me or follow me on on social media that my family is a competitive family. I have three kids who are doing college athletics, which we love. My wife and I were college athletes and, and, uh, 
and now that Becky and I are old and our bodies are falling apart, the bummer part is I'm still competitive, but I don't have a body that can help me be competitive. So we have chosen to be competitive in other ways. The, the, the competitive drive has not died in the Stevenses. And so we compete in like little silly ways. I was thinking about this earlier this week. For example, when Becky and I, we've had this thing for like 25 years. That when we get in the car, it's not always, but every now and then we get in the car and like two gunslingers on an old west road, we look at each other and we know it's on and then it's a race to see who can buckle their seatbelt first. And we're just going crazy trying to buckle it. And no, anything goes. There's no rules. So we can obscure the other person, push the other person, put our foot on theirs. We're trying to get our seatbelt buckled. And whoever wins, you know, can just puff up their chest just a little bit because we won that silly little competition. So that's the, that's the, the backdrop of our competitive ways. And, and one of the maybe a little bit less safe ways that has manifested in our life is as any married couple, when we get in the car and we're driving somewhere, there's always debate about which is the fastest way to get from point A to point B, right? Married couples, you know this. How many times has your husband gone straight and you're like, why'd you go straight? You should have took a left. Or how many times has your wife gone straight and you're like, why didn't you take the exit? This is really dumb. You're taking a long way home. And we have that. Becky and I have that as a family. And oftentimes we just argue and we never have any way of resolving it. However, when we come to church on a Sunday, it's always a debate how we're going to get home. We live up uh, kind of by in East Medford. So we can go down, you know, Biddle to McAndrews, Biddle to McAndrews, to Crater Lake Avenue, to Pierce, to this, to, to Hillcrest, or all the way down to Jackson. And we always wonder which way is the fastest and we argue about it. But every now and again, you know, I take my car to church before Becky. And every now and again, we leave here at the same time and it's we're pulling out of the parking lot. We look at each other and we observe the rules of the road all the way home. I mean, it's sideways, fast and furious, drifting around corners, you know, trying to get home first. And when I get home first, because I always do, uh, what, I, what I like to do is jump out of the car, cross my arms, lean up against the car. When Becky comes around the corner, I'm like, I got you. Of course, humble, very, very humble that I, my way was the fastest way. There's a reason I'm telling you this, right? Here's how it goes in our family. We're together. We diverge, take different paths, struggle with pride, end up at the same place together as a loving, happy family. I'm sharing this because we come to a text today in Daniel where the people of God, well-meaning Christians, diverge. As we navigate the, the, the various pathways that different Christians throughout different generations have chosen to take and how to interpret these words, there is a divergence among the people of God on how to read and understand these words. But we have to keep in mind, as we navigate through these various pathways of the text, we're a loving family. So here's how it's going to go. Look around. We're together. We're going to diverge on our understanding of this text. I guarantee you we're not all going to be on the same page. We're going to take different paths, and yes, we're probably going to struggle with pride, but we're going to end up at the same place, the family of God, together for eternity. Amen? If I can be honest for just a minute, I've had some fear and trepidation knowing that Daniel 9, verses especially 24 through 27, were on the preaching calendar. I've had some, some trepidation about this for quite some time. This is quite possibly the most contested, controversial, confusing bit of text for sure in Daniel, but maybe all of the Bible. And here at Heritage, we call ourselves a word-centered church. We are committed to the right handling of God's word. Uh, we, we, we are committed to what we call expository preaching, which means that we are, we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible. We do not have the freedom to leapfrog or avoid difficult texts. When we come to a difficult text, we have to deal with it honestly. So that's where we are today. 
I'm mindful of what David Helm wrote in his commentary. He said, God had these lines, these difficult lines, God had these lines written for us to understand and be encouraged by. This is God's word for us, and we're going to handle it as well as we can. Flawed, I'm sure, but as well as we can. And though we may diverge on how to view this particular passage, we all converge on this truth. Anchor your hope to the God of history. For his promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. Okay, so how do we get here? How do we get to Daniel 9, verse 20? Do you remember what happened last week? So when Daniel 7 happened, we had this, the beginning of the, the, the switch in the genre. It became this apocalyptic literature, this revealing of God of these spiritual realities behind earthly events. And we've been watching for two and a half chapters now, chapter 7, chapter 8, and now chapter 9, as these visions have unfolded. And Daniel's been seeing these visions. And, and as chapter 9 began, you know, he's somewhere around the year 539 B.C., he... Uh, he specifically, we tell us, he tells us at the beginning of this chapter, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading God's word, and he comes to understand that this exile of which he's a part in Babylon, now the Persian Empire, is, is got a time stamp on it. There's an expiration date to the exile, and the prophet Jeremiah made that clear. He was either reading Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 29. And so Daniel says, oh my goodness, I've been here 65 years. The The exile is going to end at some point, so he begins to pray this fervent prayer before God. We studied it last week, begging for the mercy of God, confessing sin. And as we looked at the text last week, we we, we said that we could see Daniel seeking God by prayer, and he begins by acknowledging that God is a great and awesome God. He then confesses his sins and the sins of his people before God, and then he pleads God for his mercy. And we've got to see Daniel doing this. He's an old man. He's probably 80 years old. He's lived the vast majority of his life in exile away from Israel or away from Jerusalem and Judah. But he's praying for his people. And as we looked at Daniel's prayer last week, we kind of reflected on our own prayer lives and, and, and what it means for us as we applied it to us. We said that, that the argument was to come to God in confession, contrition, and with great expectation. And now we pick up as Daniel's still on his knees still pleading to God, still praying. And as he's on his knees, as he's praying, God answers his prayer. Here in verse 20 and 21. One preacher says, the urgency of Daniel's prayer is matched by the immediacy of God's response. Look at verse 20 and 21 again with me. He says, while I was speaking and praying, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my people... Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer on my knees, literally, the man Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, whom I had seen in the vision at first, he came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. So here's the first thing I want you to write down if you're a note taker. As we look at verses 20 through 23, we see a prayer response. We see a prayer response. Daniel's praying. And we see the response of God to the prayer of Daniel, a prayer response. And not only does God, through Gabriel, this angel, quickly respond to Daniel's prayer, he has something important that he wants to communicate to Daniel. He doesn't just respond and say, hey, I'm here. There's a message that he brings. Look at verses 22 and 23. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So at least there are a couple things happening here. We see God's swift response during Daniel's prayer. 
And we see God's desire that his loved one, Daniel, understands what he's saying. And as we look at that, we even step back a little bit further. There's some other things happening here that I just think we need to notice. Really important things that we need to notice. These four verses, I think, contain some profoundly true things for Daniel. And for Daniel, as he's going to be looking into the future here in a few moments of these 70 weeks, it's as if God is saying, there are some very true things right now I want you to know. Experientially and through this proclamation. The first thing that we can see that Daniel understood is that God hears his prayer, right? God hears his prayer. Look at verse 23. At the beginning, your pleas for mercy. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. At the moment you began praying, a command was given, and now I'm here to tell you what it was, says Gabriel. And so as Daniel's on his knees, broken and afraid, responding to the word of God that he received through Jeremiah, pleading God on behalf of his people, confessing wrongdoing, extolling the attributes of God, and asking God for mercy, the listening ear of God was attuned to him. Daniel's pleas for mercy weren't skipped over by the ever-watchful eye of God. As a loving father in heaven, his ear was attuned to the prayers of of this man. So Daniel could know that his prayers weren't just some empty religious practice. It was communing with the God of the universe. And then we see for Daniel that God responds. Not only is God hearing the prayer of Daniel, he's responding to Daniel. Look at verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight. And he made me understand, it says in verse 22. So not only is God listening to the prayers of Daniel, he's responding. And and think about this. It was the, the prayers of Daniel moved God. (laughs) That's hard for me to understand the theology of that. But the prayers of Daniel caused God to move and respond in a real way that met Daniel where he was. That's beyond my understanding that a sovereign creator God who knows the beginning from the end can have his ear attuned to his saint or his servant and he can actually respond in faith real time with the pleas of his saint. But he does. And he drew near to Daniel and through the, through the angel Gabriel. He made himself known to Daniel. And then we see what motivated all of it, right? In verse 23. The middle part, Gabriel said to Daniel, you are greatly loved. So so not only does God hear Daniel, not only is God responding to Daniel, but God loves Daniel. He loves Daniel and he's responding to him in love. His listening ear and his swift response is born out of love. And I thought about that as 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 a loving parent. What loving parent, when your ears are attuned to your children, whether they're in the other room or in the front yard or on the baby monitor, or they, they call you on the phone and they begin to express pain and fear, They tell you they're vulnerable and in need. What do you do as a loving parent? You drop everything. And you run to your kids. I love this picture. But not only does God hear Daniel, not only is he responding to Daniel, not only does God love Daniel, finally, God desires that Daniel understands what it is he's doing. Three times in verses 22 through 23, we see the word understand or understanding. He made me understand, Daniel says. Then Gabriel says to Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. Gabriel says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God wants Daniel to know what he's up to. Though he's a mysterious God and though we'll never fully understand the ways of God, his ways are above our ways, uh, there's a certain sense in which that God wants Daniel to know what it is he's up to. He wanted to know the true things that he is doing. And so he reveals himself in a powerful way to Daniel, 
giving him understanding. So Daniel can begin to understand and surrender to the very will of God and the plan of God. Wow. Have you ever, have you ever wondered about your prayers? Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself in a position similar to Daniel? Broken and unsure and afraid and deeply concerned? Have you ever wondered that as you're lifting up your prayers to God in desperation, if he hears? I found myself this morning in 1 John chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you the words here. John writes there, there's this, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Amen. What about God's response to your prayers? Have you ever wondered how it is and the way it is God responds to your prayers. Now, I know that there have been a zillion sermons and very difficult pa- pastoral conversations that can be had. There's lots to this conversation. I'm not trying to be trite here. But have you ever, I know we've all struggled with unanswered prayers and there's a whole lot that goes with that, but, but I'm looking at Daniel and I'm looking at the will of God and I'm looking at what I read in the scriptures and I know that God responds to my prayers. And sometimes his response is, Paul, you're praying the wrong thing and I'm just going to give you some space to keep praying the wrong thing. And at times I'll respond. John puts it this way, 1 John 5, verse 14, or verse 15, he says, And if we know that that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So God hears and answers prayers when they align with his will. God loves us. We don't ever have to wonder about that, church. For God so loved us that he gave us his only son. Christ is the, and the cross is is the image stamped in our hearts and minds of the love of God for us in his son. And God desires, us for un- desires for us to understand the fact that we're gathered here this morning and we have the living word of God open. We're reading the words of God. You're sitting under the word preached, hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit. We recognize God wants us to understand who he is. He has revealed himself to us that we can understand him and know him. How encouraging. And what is God saying ultimately out of our text this morning? He's simply saying this. Anchor your hope to the God of history. We, we studied First Peter this last couple of week, or this last couple of days, and, and we kept saying again and again, it's like, God operates in history. He operates in, in dateable history, primarily through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But God, God works in history. These, these words of Daniel are rooted in dateable history. God works in history, and God is sovereignly controlling the events and the details of history. We can anchor our hope to the God of history. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. So we see a prayerful response here. What about, what about verse 24? Let's turn there. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and about your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy, prep, most holy place. Verse 24 is, is the gravitational center of the text in, in, in my estimation. This is the centerpiece of our passage, and really it's the focal point of redemptive history. This is where the world is going. As God is sovereign over history, sovereign, our history is sovereignly being led to the picture we see painted here in verse 24, this picture of promised redemption, and that's, that's the second thing I want you to write down. We see prayer response. Secondly, here in verse 24, we see promised redemption. We see promised redemption. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Now, now that's a little bit confusing. 70 weeks, what's this mean? It's literally, it means 70 sevens, 70 sets of seven. 
The literal translation refers to, to periods of seven without necessarily saying what the units are, but I felt that the ESV study Bible had a helpful little commentary note about that for us. Here, here's what the ESV says. Most scholars understand the 77s to be made up of 70 times seven years or nine, 490 years, but apply these years to different periods of time. In any case, the important point is that God has appointed the amount of time and thus his people should not lose heart. Anchor your hope to the God of history. I can tell you one thing. As I get into the more difficult aspects of our passage today, one thing is abundantly clear to me. And the one thing that is crystal clear to me is that this text is absolutely not clear. <laughs> the one thing that I can unequivocally say I'm positive about in this passage is I'm not positive about much. That's what I can tell you. This is the point as we start talking about the 70 years and this is a point where well-meaning Christians diverge. I mean, I've, I've read, as I've shared with you guys in the past, you know, I, I've, I usually pick up three or four commentaries that try to come from perspectives across the theological landscape. And uh, I've read all three of these guys on how they see Daniel 9. None of them agree <laughs> on how to read it. But they all have great points. And I'm not saying any one of them is wrong. I, I don't know. So I've read multiple theologians and scholars. I've heard, I've heard a, a plethora of pastors preach this text. I've, I've run into a handful of, of armchair end times experts over the last couple weeks. Um, and most are humble enough to recognize that there are many, uh, there are many varied views here. And, and viable views. There, there are many who are convinced of their camp, which they should be. I've studied it and this is where I've landed on this. I'm very convinced that my camp is the right camp. But there's humility and that they can recognize there's others who don't think that way. And, and once in a great while, you bump into someone who's unhinged and, and belligerent, and, and they unhelpfully, and I think very sinfully, uh, begin to hurl accusations of heresy to anyone who doesn't think exactly the way they do. It's not helpful. I like to just turn those videos off. Um, there's a need for great humility when approaching this passage. You know, I was looking at this earlier this week. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible, both Old and New Testament combined. Of those 31,102 verses, we have four today that we're looking at right now that are, that are hotly contested and confusing and controversial. These four verses that we're going to study in the next few minutes comprise exactly 0.03% of the Bible, which means that 99.7% of the Bible is much easier to understand. And, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, I like what Alistair Begg has to say. He, he says we need to understand and interpret what is unclear in the Bible by what is clear. That's just a simple rule of biblical interpretation. Uh, Beg has, has, the, has the tendency to say, let's keep the plain things the main things and the main things the plain things. And those sorts of rules apply when we get to this difficult text. Amen? Okay, great. Uh, glad you're with me. So, let's get into the weeds, huh? This mention of 70 weeks, these 70 sets of seven, has, has long, long drawn intense interest by scholars and preachers and theologians and students of the Bible. There have been untold speculations and calculations and considerations and prognostications and immense amounts of ink have been spilled as people try to figure out these verses. And rightly so. I'm not, I think that's a good, th it's a good thing to, to pour over the Word of God. Case in point is I open up my ESV study Bible that I left in my office. Normally when I'm reading my ESV study Bible, I got about 80% text and about 20% commentary. When I get to Daniel 9, it's about 5% text and about 95% commentary because there's so much that has been written and thought about concerning these passages. And, spoiler alert, church, no one agrees. No one agrees. These guys don't agree. 
And throughout Christendom and across the Christian landscape, well-meaning, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, disciple-making Christians disagree on how how to understand this passage. Christians diverge on how to understand this passage, but we don't need to divide. It's okay to diverge in our interpretation, but we do not believe this is a place where we divide. At Heritage, we, 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 we practice what we call open-handed eschatology. About two months ago, I shared the statement right out of our, our covenant membership language on how we view eschatology. I throw it up on the screen. Here's what it says. We practice open-handed eschatology. We believe in the bodily return of Jesus to the earth, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment of the living and the dead before the judgment seat of Christ. We strongly believe in the second coming of Jesus and honor the differing views or convictions within the body of Christ on the issue of timing sequence of last events. Again, I would, I would, I would point you to our discussion on YouTube. In that, in part, one of the things we are trying to do is model what does a healthy constructive, theologically sound discussion about eschatology look like where people disagree. On that panel, Dave Cartwright and Mike Robinson have differing eschatological convictions. And they didn't fight, didn't punch, didn't hurl accusations, but they had a thoughtful discussion about how to read Revelation 20 and other texts. It was wonderful. So there's lots that's unclear. But let's first, again, let's go back to what's clear here. As we look at verse 24 and beyond, what is clear? Though we're not sure what to think about the 70 weeks, can, can you, as you look at the second half of verse 24, can you at least see some of the things that are pretty clear here? This forward-looking picture of, of, of a future promised redemption. Verse 24 gives us a picture of, of the kind of redemption that Daniel can expect and that we can expect. Did you see the six things contained in verse 4? What's, gonna, what's this promised redemption going to look like? Well, well rebellion is, is finished. Sin is ended. Guilt is atoned for. Righteousness will be everlasting. Prophecy will be confirmed or sealed. And the holy place will be anointed. And so this is pointing to this future promised redemption. There will be a day of ultimate redemption. And what we've seen, what's true now for Daniel, we also can see that there are things that are true then for Daniel. I want to I do a little practice that I, that I want to do for you about this text, because I think sometimes when we're in a really confusing text, it's helpful to know what's, what's, what's clear. So I hope my, my tape works. I want to talk about what's true now for Daniel, and I want to talk about what's, what's true then for, for Daniel. Let's no, just go like that. Here we go. Okay, so, so what's true now for Daniel? We, we, we discussed this just a few minutes ago. What's, what's true now for Daniel? Well, we know that God hears his prayer, Right? That was true now for Daniel as he's in our text. We know that God responds to his prayer. We know that God loves Daniel. And we know that God wants Daniel to understand. There's the 70 weeks, which is not clear. But then there, it, what is clear is what's true then for, for Daniel. What's true then for Daniel is that there's going to be a time where God, through Jesus is going to to finish rebellion forever. No longer will there be rebellion against God. There's going to be a time where sin will be forever put to an end. No longer will sin be a thing in the new heavens and the new earth. There is a time when guilt and shame will be entirely atoned for. There's going to be a time when righteousness will be everlasting. There'll be a time when all promise of God is wholly fulfilled. Do you know what that means? Do you know how often we live with this this thirst and this hunger and this ache for for the, the elusive what if? 
or the elusive next thing, or there's this, this itch, itch in our soul we can't quite scratch, this longing we can't quite satisfy, this anticipation of something we can't quite grab hold of. There's a day, according to Daniel right here, where there's going to be a day when all promise, all prophecy, all things we hope for will be perfectly and entirely fulfilled. No more longing. No more striving. No more aching. No more craving. And a holy place will be anointed. So though there's a lot that's unclear in our text, what's true now in our text is pretty clear. And what's going to be true then in our text is pretty clear. You tracking with me? You with me? Okay, okay. As I think about what's true then, this picture in, Revela- or in Daniel, Daniel 9 verse 24, I find myself... Of course, as we found ourselves this week in our podcast, kind of going back to Revelation 21. So, so, so here's, here's Becky and I in the parking lot. We get in our cars, take our different paths, sin a little bit, and then we come back and, and we're at home together. What's clear now. So, so as Christians, you know, like as we even look at this tech as interpreters, we, okay, we know what's clear with Daniel verses 21 to 23. Let's deal with 70 weeks. That's not so clear. We're going to disagree on that. But we all agree how the thing, we we see where it diverges and we can also see where it converges. Every Christian converges on the new heavens and the new earth, the redemption of all things, this promised redemption that Daniel is talking about. And as we were in our podcast on Thursday, we kept coming back to this, just this well-known passage in Revelation 21. I know you've heard it. It's, it's the, the Apostle John given a revelation of, 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 the, of the new reality for all of God's people. And he says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, the dwelling place of God is with man, and, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I love that picture of what God has in store for his own. And so we we see a prayer response. We see promised redemption. And here's what God is saying to Daniel ultimately, and what he's saying to us, is even in the confusing parts, the, the pathway, the 70 weeks, as history unfolds, and we don't really agree, we don't really know, we can anchor our hope to the God of history. He's orchestrating all things. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. And so now we get to the, 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 the meat and potatoes of, of this chapter. Well, it's not really the meat and potatoes, but it's the part that has garnered the most interest from people over the centuries. Verses 25 to 27. And we see here that there are three sets or three blocks of seven. In verse 25, we see that there shall be seven weeks, seven sets of seven. And then later on in verse 25, there are 62 weeks or 62 sets of seven. And then at the end of the text, all the way down in verse 27, we see where there will be one week totaling 70 weeks total. 70 times seven. And I think it's good and it's fine for us to have convictions about these things. But we ought to notice here how, how God is giving this revelation to Daniel. In the verse 25, we, we read where, where he begins, Gabriel begins by saying, Know therefore and understand. God, God did not provide this revelation to Daniel to confuse him about these 70 weeks. 
His desire was for Daniel to know and understand what it was he was saying. He wanted Daniel to know and understand his, his plan and purpose for the people of God. He wanted him to know that, that his hand was on the steering wheel as, as history was unfolding. It seems as if Daniel understood. We don't read where Daniel struggled to interpret what was happening. And somehow, someway, Daniel understood better than we do. Here we are 2,500 years later. We're looking back. And we struggle to know and understand how these details unfold. But it seems that Daniel came, at least on some level, to a knowledge of understanding after hearing this prophecy or this revelation told to him. And so there's lots of debate and confusion. But we can't just forget the the fact that we, we simply need to remember, finally, that this passage is prophetic revelation. It's, it's prophetic revelation. We have, we have prayer response. We have promised redemption. Here, finally, verses 25 through 27, we have, we have this prophetic revelation. God is revealing to Daniel true things about the future. And, and what he wants Daniel to know, ultimately, is that, that Daniel can anchor his hope to him as the God of history. We see the 70 weeks divided here into these different blocks. And Again, there are so many camps and thoughts and theories and theologies wrapped around how to interpret these three different sets of seven, the seven, the 62, and the one. And of course, this is where Christians diverge. So let me kind of step back for a second. Let's remember, where, where, what do we agree on? What do we know? Well, we know that God hears prayer. We know that, that God responds to prayer. We know that God loves Daniel, at least. We know that God wants Daniel to understand what's going on. And, and we also know that there's this now or this true then reality. We know where history is heading. We know how the story ends, where rebellion is finished and sin is forever put to an end and, and guilt and shame are, into, are eternally atoned for, where righteousness will be everlasting, where promise is wholly fulfilled and a holy place is anointed. We know what's true now. We know what's true then. So there's some clear things here. And now as we get into the middle, the, the history between these two things, it's, it's confusing, and we can just be honest about that. There's many questions about this passage. Let me just pose a few. Maybe you've asked these questions, as most who study this text have. Questions like, who's the anointed one? In verse 25. Well, some people say it's Cyrus, this king who decreed the return of Jerusalem, or the return to Jerusalem. Prophet Isaiah called him anointed, and Isaiah 45.1. Some people think the anointed one here is Joshua, who was the high priest at the time of the reconstruction of the temple. Some people think it's Zerubbabel, who, who was the king who led the construction of the temple. But ultimately, no one knows for sure who the anointed one is in verse 25. There's questions like, who is the anointed one who is cut off in verse 26? It's not the same as the anointed one in verse 25. Some people think the anointed one in verse 26 is Onius, who was this high priest at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek king, who was murdered in 170 BC, cut off, anointed as a high priest, but then murdered, cut off. Others believe the anointed one in verse 26 is Jesus Christ, who was anointed and who was crucified, cut off. But ultimately, no one knows for sure. Questions like, who is he who makes strong covenant and who put an end to sacrifice in verse 27? Who is this? Well, again, there's many options. Some people say it's Antiochus Epiphanes, this person who we've mentioned many, many times, who put an end to temple worship and 165 BC, the three and a half in verse 27 there being the time that he ended sacrifices in the temple. That could be a fulfillment. Some people think it's Jesus Christ who in the first century, he put an end to sacrifice because he became the ultimate sacrifice with his death and resurrection. Three and a half being symbolic of the first half of his earthly ministry. Some people think that this, this one who made strong covenant and put an end to sacrifice is Titus, who was this Roman general who was responsible for the overthrow and destruction of Jerusalem and ultimately the temple. 
Some people think the future anti- this is a future antichrist. This, this, this one who makes a strong covenant to put an end to sacrifice is pointing to uh, a future antichrist figure who's yet to be revealed. And the three and a half is reflective of a covenant that's going to be broken. But again, no one is sure. In the past, we've thrown up a picture of mountains with many horizons. And we've talked about how in apocalyptic literature, there is this thing that we call, there's a trans-temporal nature of this literature. In that, there are oftentimes multiple horizons in view as God is speaking a prophetic word. And so trans-temporal simply means that these different eras of time that collapse upon one another. And so what was true and beneficial for Daniel's era is true and beneficial for our era and be true and beneficial for future generations of Christians. And there could be multiple horizons in view. Perhaps, as we read verse 27, <coughs> Antiochus Epiphanes was in view. Maybe that's the first horizon. And perhaps Titus was in view. Perhaps Jesus was in view. Perhaps there's a view of a future Antichrist. There could be multiple fulfillments in view with multiple horizons. There was one scholar who used a word, I don't know how to pronounce it, but the root word was, was germinate. And he talked about how when you put a seed to the ground, it's a small seed, but it germinates and grows. And sometimes these prophecies are like a a, a germinating word in that there are multiple ways in which these prophecies can find fulfillment. That could be a potential answer to what we're struggling with this morning. Of major significance to me, honestly, as I look at verse 25, is this word like, who sent the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? It's not clear. Some people like to think it's clear. Bible teachers that I know say it's abundantly clear. It's not. This could be referring to Jeremiah, who in 605 BC gave a prophecy that the people of God would go on exile for 70 years and return. It could be the decree of Cyrus in 638 BC, who sent the people of God back to Judah and Jerusalem. It could be the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra. In 458 BC, it could be the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in 445 BC, but, but no one knows for sure. I'm not doing this to be mean. I'm doing this to be recognized. This is a difficult, complex situation. And there's one thing that's abundantly clear when we come to these verses. It's that it's not clear. I I know that there's an insane amount of people and dates. And and there's good, strong, viable arguments for all the pathways that people have taken taken in interpreting this text. And and anyone who says that it's simple or easy or clear is either underinformed or they're ignorant to the broader discussion, or, or, or you know, worst off, they're, they're just arrogant. Again, these gentlemen who have, whoops, oh, see, we'll get past it. Um, these gentlemen, they, they don't agree, right? And th- these are guys who have PhDs and spent their whole life studying this. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, like, what hope do I have? To, 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 or, or how, how, how prideful would it be for me to think that I have the 100% perfect view on this? And so, here's what I want us to do for, for a few minutes. I don't think that it's, we can't just skip over this. There are multiple views, but I don't think we can say, no one agrees, so let's just leapfrog these four verses and pretend like they're not in the Bible. They're here for us. God has given us these verses for a reason. And we need to take a few minutes to kind of, to kind of lean into them and see what we can figure out. I'm not going to teach just one perspective today and tell you what to think and believe because I don't think that's fair. And I think you need to wrestle with this yourself. I think you need to open up your Bibles and you need to study and try to figure out what it is you believe and what are your convictions concerning eschatology. But let me offer this. Let me simply offer this simple uh, moment of teaching. Uh, the question of interpretation for these verses ultimately comes down to two things. Either, either you're going to read these verses literally 
Or you're going to read these verses symbolically. That's really the big question. And as you look at all the different camps and the different pathways that people have chosen for how to think of these 70 years, the lens that they view it with is either a, ve- a lens of this is, they're symbolic, these 70 years, or they're absolutely literal and need to be taken literally. And both are viable camps. So here, here's what I want to do. I'm going to put on my hat right now as uh, a guy who believes that we have to take these words literally. Let me argue for that for just a minute or two. Most of you who are familiar with this text have likely seen it taught that we have to read these words and see these years as literal years and as literal words. Many, many, many Christians believe this. Very bright, smart, godly authors and Christian leaders have this conviction about this text. Millions of Christians hold the literal interpretation view. So you start with verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is seen as the chronology of the history of Israel. This language is about final things. It speaks of final things. Your people is seen as Israel. Your holy city is seen as Jerusalem. Everlasting righteousness is the inbreaking of the kingdom. Anointed, the most holy anointed one is speaking actually about the crowning of the Messiah. The term weeks here is used to refer to seven to, to years. This is, this is, as most scholars agree, 70 sets of seven means this is referring to 490 years. The belief is that this is literal years that need to be held on to literally, not figurative. So the question becomes, when did the clock start? If there are 490 years that are about the history of Israel, where we have, as we look at this text, we have to ask ourselves, where did this 490, when did the stopwatch start or the countdown clock start so that we can know how it was ultimately fulfilled? If you look at verse 25, Gabriel says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to, the, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. And so the question is, what is the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem? We have to make an interpretive decision here. And so if I'm going to wear the literalist hat, I kind of only really have one or two options here. Because if, it's, if I'm bound to these 490 years, I've got to make a decision. And so I'm going to have to go to Artaxerxes as the one who makes this decree in the book of Nehemiah or Ezra. Probably Nehemiah. I'm probably going to go to 445 BC when, when, when Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah, or, yeah, gave Nehemiah a, a decree or a command to go back and rebuild the walls of the city. And so I, I know that there are other options, but I'm, 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 going to, I'm going to camp on this one. And scholars have done some work, and that's believed to be on March 14th, 445 BC, that decree was sent out. And so then I begin to count down. Because there's a future 70th week that we're not thinking about here. So we've got we to actually de- de- decrease, subtract seven years because that's future. And so I'm looking at 69 sets of seven, which is 483 years. And so, so I've got to look at from the time of that decree in 445 BC, I've got to look at 483 years. There's a guy named Sir Robert Anderson who was an Irish lay theologian, a, a lawyer, a writer, a, an author, a, 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 a biblicist who, who wrote some books about this. He was, he was a, a really accomplished in his understanding of of, of prophetic literature, and he did some work. It's been, it's been um, accused of not being great work, but he did some work where, where he went from March 14th, 445 BC, taking into consideration the 360-day biblical year, and he did some work, and he added it all up, and he counted from 445 BC, uh, the 69 sets of seven, and he came to April 6, 32 AD. And if this is true, if this is a true, a literal interpretation, this is insane if it's true. According to Anderson, that was the exact day that Jesus rode his donkey into the city of Jerusalem and proclaimed himself to be king. If that's true, think of how insanely accurate this prophecy is. 
If this view and these calculations are correct, it's mind-blowing that we can know exactly to the day that the, the 69 sets of seven went from the decree of Artaxerxes to the entering of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey pronouncing himself king. We have fulfillment. Now there's still a, a future 70th week to come and, and, and people who have the literalist perspective see this as a future seven-year period that's still awaiting us. It's in the future. We're living in this parentheses era. In this future seven-year period involves the Antichrist and tribulation and rapture and the second coming of Jesus. But this is the literalist view. It's a, I mean, millions of Christians hold this view. It's a viable view. It's a good view. I'm going to take off the hat, though. What about the other camp? What about those who see this symbolically? Let's put on that hat. Let's put on the symbolic hat. How might we view these verses symbolically? With less focus on calculating precision and more of a broader focus on, the, on theology and, and how it is God has revealed himself throughout all of Scripture. If we think even about apocalyptic literature as, as, a, as a guy who sees this symbolically, I say to myself, apocalyptic literature is never meant to be read literally. It's always in symbols and images and metaphor and simile. So it's a misapplication and a mishandling of apocalyptic literature to make it literal. That's what I would say if I'm, if I'm wearing this hat. For example, if you even think about the 70 years of exile that preceded all of this, no matter which way you slice it historically, the Israelites were not in Babylon for 70 years. If you want to start with the fall of Nineveh, that was 612 BC. That means they were there for 73 years. If you want to start with the ascension of Nebuchadnezzar, it was in 605 BC. That means they were there 66 years. If I want to start the clock of exile at the captivity of, of the, the beginning of captivity in 597 BC, that means the Israelites were only in captivity for 58 years. If I want to start it from the destruction of the city and the temple, that was, means in, in, in 486 BC, that means they're only in exile for 47 years. The reason I say that is because it, it, if the 70 years that predicates everything else we're talking about, literally, if that's not even 70 years, how can we say the 490 should absolutely be 490 years down to the right day? We need to take this symbolically, they would say. Or figuratively. 70 means like a lifespan. That's what they would say. Chapter 9 opens up. And it's really, it, it, you know, it's, it's, I think it's 539 BC. Um, Daniel's praying. And, or maybe 549 BC. But anyways, Daniel's praying. And, and it's, he's, he's praying at about 66 years of captivity. If, if you count it from the time of his, his exile. So if it's supposed to be 70 years exactly, then he probably should just have folded his hands and waited four years for the 70 years to pass and then pray to be sent. You see what I'm saying? Like they're, 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 so the thinking is to be less literal here. One, one, one scholar says this, if Jeremiah's 70 years turned out to be less than that, we should not be too surprised if Daniel's 77 turns out to be something other than 490 years. And that was from a dispensational theologian who actually holds to a literal interpretation who said that. So the question is asked then, what is theologically special and distinctive about 70 times 7? As we think more broadly about the Bible, not literally, but more like symbolically, why, why, why does 70 and 7 and 490, where does this, how do we think about this biblically? Well, we think about the people of God. They had Sabbath rhythms, and they come into view here. You know, every seventh day, there was the command to Sabbath rest. Every seventh year, there was the rest for the land. These rhythms pointed forward to a future consummation, the observation of regular rest on the seventh day and the seventh year really pointed to a greater ultimate rest for the people of God that the Messiah would one day bring. And so when Gabriel's speaking to, to Daniel, he doesn't talk about 60 sets of seven or 80 sets of seven. He talks about 70 sets of seven. Why? Why 490? What's significant about that number symbolically? What, what would be a symbolically biblical significant 
way to think about 490. Well, could it be connected to the ultimate rest of God's people? The Old Testament, there was this practice called Jubilee, this 50th year celebration. After 49 years of toil and working the land, there was a 50th year of ultimate celebration of much greater rest for the land than just the seven rhythms or the rhythms of seven. Read about it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. It's at this practice of jubilee that they're to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and all of its inhabitants. And it shall be jubilee when each of you shall return his property, each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor rather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it's jubilee. It shall be holy for you. You may eat in the produce of the field. So, so could it be that, that one, the jubilee year, you know, as we see the practice of the Jews to, to, to give all property back to its original owner, to set slaves free, to cancel debt, to let the land rest, could it, could it be pointing to something greater? For the people of God, Jubilee became this, this anticipation, a symbol of anticipation of a greater Jubilee that awaited the people of God, an eternal rest, a future ultimate redemption and release and restoration that God would bring his people into by the coming of the Messiah. And if you look at Daniel 9, Daniel begins by, it's the only place in Daniel where he uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and could it be that he's appealing to the covenant promises of God for this promised future redemption? And so the person who sees this more symbolically would say that 70 sets of seven is an intentional intensification of the Jubilee concept. As we look at the picture painted here in verse 24, it's not a 40-year demi-Jubilee that's in view. It's 10 times greater, referring to the ultimate Jubilee. So that's what the, sim- I'm taking my symbolic hat off. So we got, we got the literalist, we got the, the person who takes it symbolically. Which one's right? Which one's right? I don't know. I'm just honest, I don't. I, honestly, I wish I was more convinced of a position. There's times I sit down and I listen to people who teach it this way. I'm like, yeah, that's convincing. And there's times I hear people teach it this way. I'm like, yeah, that, that's convincing. I guess I wish I was more convinced, honestly. I know people that are, and I, and I kind of wish I was at that place. I, I'm just simply not. But here's what I know for sure. I know that, that we are to anchor our hope to the God of history. No matter how those 70 years unfold, there is one person whose hand is on the steering wheel of history as they unfold, exactly as he decrees. I know that for sure. So I'm to anchor my hope to the God of history. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. And so as we come here, we can know, know, for Daniel at least, what was true now for him, what was true then. And and, and those are are static and, and, and... However this unfolds, we know that God is sovereign over history. and He's orchestrating the events of history to unfold exactly as he wants. And I, I think it's good to have a conviction. I think it's good to read the text. I think it's good to wrestle with this. I don't think you should skip over it. I love what my friend Dave said this week in our podcast as we were talking about theology and eschatology. He said this, and I think this is something we should all take to heart. All of us will have our theology corrected when we get to heaven. None of us have it right. All of us will have our our eschatology corrected when we get to heaven. So church, I try to do it justice. We see a prayer response. We see a promised redemption. We see a prophetic revelation. But ultimately, listen, anchor your hope to the God of history. Anchor your hope to the God of history. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as it decrees. And as I think about your life and my life, I don't think we're all that different from Daniel. I think God is with us right now. 
I think God is with us right now, wherever we are in our life. I think when we fall to our knees and we lift our prayers, he hears us. I think God responds to our prayers. We don't have to wonder about his love for us. The cross speaks of the love of God. He bore our sins. He died in our place. He conquered sin and death. He rose to new life. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And he's revealed himself to us through his word. He he gives us understanding by his spirit. He's calling us to himself that we would know him and be a people of promise and and be absolutely assured that he is the God of history, that, that he is in control of how things unfold. And as we journey through life, none of us know what tomorrow brings, but he does. None of us know where the left turns are, where the right turns are, but he does. None of us knows where the mountaintops are and where the valleys are, but he does. And he's the God of history over those. And he has given us his promise that he'll never forsake us nor leave us. He journeys alongside us and he's preparing a place for us and he's secured a future for us. And where all of us who are in Christ are headed to this place where he wipes every tear from our eye. And there's no more crying or suffering or mourning or death. And we together will be the family of God and rebellion will be forever finished. No more rebellion in glory. Sin will be forever put to an end. Guilt and shame entirely, entirely atoned for. Righteousness everlasting. Promise wholly fulfilled. There's no need for a temple in heaven because we will be in relationship with God and worship him continually. A holy place anointed. And we're going to spend eternity. Just nothing prevents us from drinking deeply of the character of God, the love of God, the promise of God, the grace of God. And we will drink gulps full as much as we want, whenever we want, for all of eternity. And after 10,000 years of gulping and gulping and gulping, we will not have even had a thimbleful of the beauty that is contained within him. Isn't that awesome? So maybe the understanding is just simply that. Maybe we don't need to know all the ins and outs. We just need to know that you and I are to anchor our hope to the God of history. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. Let's pray. Father, thankful for this word today. Thankful for the promises that we read and that we see here in this text. God, thankful for the way we, you have allowed us through the study of your word today, though we didn't answer all the questions, Lord, and there's many, many, many questions, lots of meat left on the bone here. Ultimately, God, thank you that you've allowed, you've allowed our, us to lift our eyes this morning and to fix our gaze upon you and to anchor our hope to you, the God of history. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And your promised redemption will unfold exactly as you desire it to. So God, help us hope in that. And God, I do pray today, as we are on the journey, each one of us in our own different space, in our own different way, we are on a journey to you. God, I pray that you would make yourself known to us today. God, I'm mindful of the language of the 23rd Psalm that says that that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. For God, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. God, you journey with us. Thank you that you listen to our prayers. You respond to our prayers. Thank you that you love us. You give us understanding. And thank you that you have prepared a place for us. And you are steering the events of history to glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.